Today's guest on Inside the Neighborhood is my former teacher, Miss Lynn Bollinger. Um, thank you for taking the time. You uh, mentioned that this is one of your first, so I'm honored to be yes. uh, a part of that. Is it your first time on a podcast or first time on Zoom or which one? First time on a podcast. I learned a little about Zoom when we were all locked down. Yeah. Because I was helping children with school. Amazing, oh, nice. amazing. Nice, nice. Yeah, well, like I said, it's um, uh, an honor to bring you on. You know, we spent time back when you were teaching at Kokomo. I was going to Kokomo High School. Um, someone who I respect fully, someone who has supported my efforts in the community, someone who has uh, been open for me to reach out to you and give me advice and guidance. And uh, so I just want to tell you, thank you. And I appreciate all that. Honored to be a little part of that, Brandon. You've done a great deal with your life. Yeah, thank, you. thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, it's a testament to you know people like yourself, my parents, and, and great teachers that I've had yeah. along the way who have poured into me and poured into my peers, and uh, it's definitely appreciated. So as we get started, I want to um, you know maybe you can share a little bit about um, your early years as a child and your upbringing, and um, um, you're from Kokomo. You now live in Ohio, am I right? I currently live in Ohio. I move around a little bit. I was actually born and raised in Trenton, Michigan, which is downriver in Detroit. Oh, okay. Uh, it was a great time to grow up there in the 60s. I, I went to Wheaton College in Illinois where I met my husband. Mm -hmm. He was a Kokomo boy and you know, Kokomo has amazing drawing power. People. Mm -hmm. People in high school can't wait to get out. And then so many of them come back. Yeah, so yeah. we were there, we were there until Michael, Michael passed away in 2013. Mm -hmm. Taught school. Oh, nice. So did you did you always know that you wanted to teach? Was that something that you knew early? Or how'd you get involved and know that that was something that you wanted to pursue? You know, I, I went to a liberal arts school where you took a little bit of everything. Um, I always enjoyed school. I think people who like school tend to gravitate towards that. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know what, I loved, I taught for 40 years at Kokomo. Mm -hmm. Some teachers don't get to teach in the same place. Um, I went into work most days, smile on my face. I liked what I did. I liked spending time with lovely people like you. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell, I mean, even myself, just because last school year, I recently began substitute teaching here and there throughout the week. So um, one thing that I could tell right away and one thing reflecting back was just, you know, you can tell the teachers who really love and who are really passionate about what they do. Well, and I must say, I think when you went through Kokomo, most of your teachers were like that. I, I don't keep close, you know. They were, they were. Yeah. I can agree, I agree. Schools have been called on to solve societal ills. And it's a bigger job than they can probably handle. Um, you know, you were lovely, but not everybody loved English. But I had become one of those people that didn't have to raise my voice. And I could haul a young man or young woman, it was usually a young man out in the hall and just say, look, I'm, I'm gonna win. So play yeah. it my way or you have to leave. And it, 
You know what, though, I think kids know I, I was I've been told I was strict. I think I was consistent. I didn't play favorites. Mm -hmm. I really liked what I did. I really liked my students. And when I would occasionally have somebody that wasn't a lover of English, you know, I usually won them over. I mean, you were in my academic, you were in my favorite, you were in my American Lit Junior class, which was the best thing I taught. <clears throat> but I like teaching and I, I really, if you listed some, most of your teachers were people who really liked what they did. Yeah, yeah. And just to kind of comment real quick on you, commenting, commenting on yourself as being strict, something that I even commented on before. Um, looking back now, you know, when you're young, you don't really understand the, the, the methods that, you know, whether it's parents or teachers or coaches, how they're, uh, how they show their care and their love, you know? So mm -hmm. although you were strict, you know, looking back, that's just because you really truly cared. And when we, when we were acting up and not doing what we we're supposed to do, like you said, you, you would pull us to the side or take us outside and, and let us know in, a, in the right way, you know, respectful way, you know, even though we were kids. And, and that goes to, I don't know where you're subbing these days, that also goes to administrative support, that there's a whole lot of behind the scenes people that made it possible for me to love my job and do my job. And you know, I don't know what age you're subbing, but when friends of mine would have high school kids and they'd look at me and they'd go, are you kidding? Are you kidding? And I'd say, you know what? First of all, most of that good stuff you teach them at home, mm -hmm. they march it out at home. We don't have to love them. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, when kids that age are being good, and I don't mean like little robots, they're funny, they're witty, you mm -hmm. laugh a lot, you know, it's a pretty good time. Yeah, yeah, it is. So I'm uh, like I said, like I mentioned, I substituted the last four months of last, uh, I was coming off of an injury. So it was something that I had been already, I had already started the process. So when I got back into the country, I just finished the process and, you know, started substituting like two or three days a week. So I subbed from, from pre-K to eighth grade. So elementary to middle school. Um, and one thing, maybe you can comment on and share your experience. So one thing that I realized that I didn't necessarily agree with and that I would I would call out as I could was um, obviously I was a sub, so I'm in a class full of students that I'm not familiar with. And I would find out teachers would be coming in and kind of giving me the rundown on the class. And and mm. on, a, on multiple occasions, I didn't think it was the proper way to go about it. It was kind of like the teachers had already boxed certain kids into certain boxes and, and judged them and put them and put these labels on them, you know, when they're in elementary school, you know? So was that well, something me, that you experienced? Let me, suggest, let me suggest their motives, their motives were probably good, mm -hmm. but a kid, whatever age, we will respond differently to different teachers. Exactly, 100%. And, you know, I would, and, and I got to where, oh, you're getting so-and-so, you know, you hear that from other <laughs> teachers. Well, that means that teacher had trouble with that person. <laughs> Not to say I don't have trouble with that. And, uh, but I would, or, or like on the first day of class when you take attendance and somebody wasn't there <laughs> and the kids in class would go, oh, you know, you, most kids, if 
if if they are I've got to be in school that that they would like to have as little hassle they don't want to take on somebody like you they don't want to show you they're the man because they're not and most kids I mean yeah I would think I would think schools just adore having somebody like you sub I uh did a little subbing after I retired um a whole day of subbing wears me out I hate to say that because I'd like to think I'm energetic I uh, just went into the school and did a presentation on Charles Dickens for about an hour mm -hmm. love it love it I've sat down with some high school kids and tried to show them how to write better on a small scale uh, I'm not in a position where I need to tutor for money and I really like that better so working one-on-one -on -one or with a small group of kids where my job performance is not on the line. I just know stuff that works. My little eight-year-old eight granddaughter <clears throat> just came home and she's got all A's except in grammar, like mm -hmm. subject verb. I said, we can do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, so, I live a very blessed life, Brandon. I really do. Uh, you can you can tell just through following following your journey and seeing your travels and how you're spending your time and, and staying very very present and we'll get to that. Okay. Um, but um, real quick, just to finish the school part, um, I know you've taught with a lot of books, you know, throughout the years. So I want to know what was your favorite book to teach from, and what were those lessons that came from that book? Well, if you were an American lit. You struggled with me through Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, which isn't everybody. It's a great work of literature, but I would tell kids going in that it was my favorite book. Mm -hmm. And if they played me right, they could just sit and listen to me talk about it. And yeah. most of them did. So what can you learn from that? You know, the thing is, I, I taught in the public school. You know that. Mm -hmm. And you hear people talking about how godless the public schools are and how I was very free to teach that book. I mean, the book, the, the milieu is Puritanism and God and guilt and sin and redemption. Perfectly fine to teach it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of American lit from the early 1800s leaned heavily on religion. And I used to say to my class, probably to you, but I'd say, now, if all this God is getting a little troublesome, you just hang on to the 1900s, and then we throw God out the window and we look at things differently. So, you know, realizing I had very bright kids reading that book, you know, we talked about philosophy, we talked about guilt and people who talk behind your back, and, you know, it's amazing Kitties, kitties read books, teachers hand them books and they read them for plot. Who did what, what happened? And that particular book is rather thin on plot. Um, but there's a lot of life lessons about people like the lady who willingly wears her A. Mm -hmm. All these other women are pointing at her because she's such an awful sinner. And you know, you and I both know that uh, <laughs> We're all sinners <laughs> and there's hypocrisy. So I don't know, I, and I, I would have you, I would also have you actually compose a real essay 
yes, using that book, but you had to have an essay that had a thesis paragraph and three well-supported paragraphs that you had to support. So there were lessons from that novel that hopefully are practical. Now, I love to sit down with a student who has written something and mm -hmm. wants me to help them make it better. Mm -hmm. uh, if we have that going on, most, most big, I, I don't know where I learned to be an editor, but I'm actually a pretty good editor. Mm -hmm. And you know too that <clears throat> every writer, every writer who's professional, and I'm thinking in basketball, there's a, there's a thing to this, but nobody's so good, they don't need a coach or an editor. None of the great novels that you ever had to read, those writers all had readers who would read it and say, okay, this doesn't make sense, or this, that's how you make it better. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a basketball equivalent, like a coach who you think you've got a great move and it goes, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I only am a fan of basketball. I don't really know much about it. Yeah, most definitely. That, that applies to, to life in general. Yeah. Um, so your husband, Mike, he was an attorney in Kokomo. Yes. Um, how was it being the wife of an attorney? I'm sure that's a lot. I'm sure that was a lot. Well, you know, we lived in a small enough town that we actually knew a lot of the same people professionally. Now, he did not come home and talk to me about Mr. and Mrs. Smith and their problem. But I would have kids say to me, well, your, your, your husband is my mom's attorney or your husband. <clears throat> and all I would say is, well, I, I hope she's happy with what he does. And I don't really know any of the details because I didn't. And it, I, I don't know. I had one really, really strange situation. Um, I don't know why, but in the 80s, Mike several times, people couldn't pay their bills, so they'd give him their $4,000 motorcycle kind of to hang on to. <clears throat> and he would hang on to it, and then after a while, he'd sell it. And he sold somebody's motorcycle, and then I had a problem with their kid. I didn't make the connection, mm -hmm. but I had this parent conference with the father, and it devolved in, I thought he was coming across the table, at me. I had, remember Harold Candy, I had people with me, yeah. but it shocked me. And I went home and Mike said, oh, well, that's so-and-so. And I sold his tricked out motorcycle. <laughs> um, we didn't really, I, I don't think being married, I mean, I hope we were both very proud to be married to someone who was held in relatively high esteem, <laughs> you know? So, but, but rarely, did what he did trickle over to what I did. It's just, you see a lawyer, you see a doctor, you develop a relationship with them. And, and sometimes people would not understand that that's not a relationship with me. I had my own little relationship. So I guess, does that answer your question? No, it definitely does. I know How? that Mike was held, Mike was held in high esteem by his colleagues. And he was also held in high esteem by his clients. And I mean, what a legacy. Yeah, most definitely, most definitely. So um, kind of to relate that to my story and my wife's story, um, it kind of surprised me that, well, I'm kind of curious, like with that type, with any type of career that you're in and your involvement with people and 
uh, being in critical situations and just dealing with, with whatever comes with your profession. Um, I know I found myself uh, speaking to my wife about my day at the job, on the court, dealing with my coaches, dealing with my management. And I know she would come home sometimes and she was a private nurse. So she would always sure. uh, tell me you know, what she was going through and what she was experiencing with her clients and with their family. So what do you think that was like, did, did he or did you, did y'all have that outlet to speak on? We, the know, we, we did, we did. Um, specifically not names, because that would be inappropriate. Mm -hmm. There would be times that he was going to select a jury and he'd start talking about facts. He said, does that matter to you? And I'd say, well, that one doesn't matter to me or that does matter to me. So he, he picked my brain, although no offense to Kokomo, he said I was more educated than the average juror. <laughs> um, he, um, my daughter just said the other day, how many dinner conversations we had growing up where you just learn about people and you learn about the law. I will say this, I don't know if I would be like this, but you know, I don't sign anything till I read absolutely everything. And when I'm dealing, and now that I'm, you know, I'm widowed, I have to, not much, but I have to take over some legal things. I had to see an attorney recently about a, a, an estate matter. Mm -hmm. And I always, and I'm not apologetic when I say, I need you to explain this to me. I need you to go slow. I need to know what it is we're doing. And then I write it down. I don't, um, I'm a little more leery of somebody just getting a quick signature and doing something with that. So I guess, I, I think, I think I was much more of a people person as far as intimate people person. Mm -hmm. So he would pick my brain or, you know, he would come home and there would be, you know, blah, blah, blah. What do you, what do you think that was all about? Mm -hmm. So, yes, but I think spouses do that. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. I don't know why, Brandon, but I, I have gone through my life. I'm not going to change. I really think everybody likes me. Even the ornery kid that wants to cuss me out at school. I, oh, he's having a bad day. So I wasn't equipped. That's ridiculous, of course. I wasn't well equipped when somebody obviously, like a professional person, would go after me. And I remember coming home one time and saying, blah, 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 this happened. And I said, was that a shot? He says, mm -hmm. yeah, and that was a shot. <laughs> um, so I'm pretty protected from most of that. And you know what? Going through life thinking everybody likes you. Mm -hmm. Maybe ridiculously childlike, but it's not a bad way to go. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. You've positively <laughs> been there for a lot of people and affected a lot of lives. So um, now you know, you know, Michael was a man of faith, mm -hmm. and he did not want to be the Christian attorney. He had his reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't preach it, but I assume a lot of my students knew that I was a Christian, not just a Bible nice lady. I was a Christian. Mm -hmm. I know that during the period of time, you're probably aware of this because you're, you know, Michael, they cut my husband open and they sewed him back up and said, you've got less than a year to live. And that was in 209. So 
And although we are people of faith, we also believe doctors are smart. And when they signed cancer all over, you know, so we prepared for him to die. We had a sea of people praying and God had stuff for him to do. And he lived for almost five years. And I will say that amazing, amazing things that God did through my husband that I got to witness. Um, I lived, we, we never, you know, he'd say, well, I, I mean, the doc, this is going to kill you, Mike, but just not today. I lived as the most treasured woman on the planet for the end of my marriage because he was sad that he was leaving me. And, you know, we had a fine marriage, but I don't think I remember being treasured. Like, I don't want to leave you. And so God gave me that at the end of my marriage as I walked my husband to the end of his life which is just a wonderful gift. No, it is, it is. Um, your husband made a comment that um, uh, the only, what do you say, that the power in facing the uncontrollables is how you respond to them. So up until the point of the initial diagnosis, um, even kind of relating it to my experience with my wife, which was a completely different situation, probably like the opposite of what you experienced with it being just a- Yours was like- yeah, it was just like that. Call. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, I kind of forget what I was going to, but um, uh, let me see. You're awful young. That should come back to you. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm getting a little older, so I lose my train of thought sometimes. Right. <laughs> no, uh, you, know, you know what? When you're sitting around and you don't actually have a spouse, that passes away. Mm -hmm. People will talk about, well, which, which is worse, mine mm -hmm. with years or yours? They're oh, all I, know, I, know, I know what I was getting to. I know what I was getting to. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, no, no. So for us, it was like, you know, you, with it being a, like a spur of the moment tragedy, it's like, you never know how, really in general, you never know how it's going to be once you experience that time, you know, but I've kind of been able to accept the situation and understand it and be rest assured that the life that we live leading up to that, it was completely fulfilled. You know, we did pretty much everything that we could imagine to want to do. We uh, were deep uh, on our own self-discovery journey, um, our own healing journey. So um, uh, how, like, is there anything, did you, after the initial diagnosis, um, could you say that you were prepared for that moving forward or was it something that you no. weren't prepared for? Because I, like, I feel like in my situation, which I don't expect a lot of people to understand, but I feel like I was prepared as I could be. And I feel like I was pretty prepared. Well, Brandon, I really think that's one of the ways God equips the survivor. You know, statistically women survive and men, I mean, more widows than widowers, okay? When Mike was first given the diagnosis, he was 57 and we thought he would die in a year. And I was like, what? You know, we figured we had 20 more years of just doing our thing. Mm -hmm. And unlike your situation, my heart, by the way, I, I follow this brand and I'm, you know, I. I had, I was given the gift of time to say, you know, to be, 
um, I'm with a widow's group occasionally. And, and there are people that will say, oh, we, you know, there are people who have a marital argument, which we have, mm-hmm. and the person passes. And you go, no, that's just life. That's just life. Um, I was given the luxury of holding my husband's hand as he breathed his last. And um, not everybody gets that. But was I prepared? No, but I think I think we walked through four and a half years of amazing experiences yeah. that prepared me. I, I have not been, I never was deep in grief at being a widow. In fact, I kept being asked, are you, how are you? How are you? How are you? All right. Well, what did you say? What did you say about oh, grief? I did not. I mean, the first couple months were just crazy. We were trying to deal with, he's going to be gone. Mm-hmm. But when he finally passed away, I was not thrown into a depression. I was not, I, I, I went on with my life and I was asked, so many times, how are you doing? And I was doing fine. I actually went to a counselor to make sure I wasn't kidding myself. But, you know, I had had a lot of time to grieve before he died. And then, frankly, you, you know, we journaled, we wrote what was going on in our lives. And we so we took a lot of whatever and put it down on paper, which for us was amazing. Yeah. And that's kind of what we did through social media, through sharing our journey the whole time. Yes. So I feel like the last like four years for us, um, it was uh, 2018. We really took a big step of really intentionally going within ourselves and understanding ourselves as individuals and as one at a deeper level. So I feel like that four years really prepared me for that tragedy. And it kind of relates to the four years that you had after the diagnosis that prepared you for after he took his last breath. And then, you know what, Brandon, some people don't get that. It's a gift. It's a mm-hmm. gift. And one thing, I, one thing I read, and I'm sure you can relate, um, it was speaking on grief. And it, it spoke on grief and it said, grief is just balled up love that you're not able to give. And for me, when I read that, it kind of confirmed and assured me again that man, I've given her all my love. Like That's I've given, I've poured into her. She's poured into me. She's, we poured into our families. Like we really had no love lost. You know, we were in That's a great, great space. So I know that's why I've been able to, you know, accept it relatively early. And me, and I've, I've as you can imagine, I've heard the same questions, you know, on the daily basis, you know, just asking how you are. And, you know, so I've kind of, I've, I've, I've realized that I've had to, um, I've had to really intentionally internalize how people perceive the transition of physical death, you know, and I've had to kind of protect myself in a way, because I know that the space that I'm in and that we were in, it's allowed me to be in a pretty special place, even now moving forward. So um, it's definitely a learning experience. Well, you know, there's a curiosity. There's a curiosity for people who are not where you and I are. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? What do people do? What what ha- there's a curiosity. And so when people, it's not mean-spirited, but it's a curiosity. Mm-hmm. And you know, oh, he went out to the movies and I mean, we had a early in our life, we had a we had a stillborn baby. Our first child was stillborn. Unexpected, full term, awful, awful. And it was the very first time everything hadn't just happened what I wanted. Mm -hmm. 
And it was my first walk in grief. And one week after the baby was born, Animal House came out. You know the movie, right? Okay. And we went to the movie and we were sitting there laughing so hard. It's probably not as funny as we were laughing. It felt really good, but I know there were people, we're small town, sitting around us knowing what we'd gone through and there we are at the movie laughing. Now, I'm not embarrassed by that, but it probably crossed somebody's mind that we should be in a cave somewhere crying. We'd already done a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of how, how it seems. It's like, no. which is, is kind of how we're raised and conditioned and how we perceive death. It's like you're kind of expected to, you know, be sad and upset and confused. And, you know, so that's why I kind of feel like eventually as I continue to move forward, like, I know there's part of my divine duty to continue to share this and share the journey that we were on for us to be able to be in a space relatively soon as I've experienced this. So I feel like it's just part of our destiny to continue to you know, touch the lives that we will continue to touch. So where are you right now? I'm in Tempe, Arizona. Okay, all right. Yeah. And you've been there before. So like, when I went to Michigan, all over, you were all over like Romania or something, weren't you over in Europe? Yeah, all over Europe, yeah. like 13 countries at this point. But when we, when we, um, like my mom, my sister came out here to school when I went to Michigan State and then a year later, my mom, and then another year later, my dad and his wife moved out here. So when my wife and I came back in the country, this is just where we came. And over the years, it just turned into home. Yeah. Well, I'm currently wrangling grandbabies for my, my mm -hmm. daughter and son-in-law who are both physicians. My son-in-law is still in the military. Mm -hmm. uh, during this time, we had one chunk of time when they were both deployed. Mm -hmm. I was like the whole thing. But I also have a little place over in Winona Lake, which is near Warsaw, that I'm okay. in the process of renovating. And, you know, someday when I'm not doing this, that's probably where I'll settle down. Nice, nice, nice. Got a few more things. Um, uh, so just if you don't mind speaking on. Go, 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 go. Okay. Um, I'm all good. Yeah, yeah. So um, your husband, he, um, he stated that um, nothing on earth is more important than family. And he spoke on the fact that throughout his work life, a lot of his time was consumed by work to where when he got the diagnosis, he was like, man, like he kind of reflected back, like I wasn't there in times where now I would have been, you know. So how how was that like balancing the work life with the kids? And then as he came to that realization, how was that for you guys? You know, he he said that there's a couple of recorded videos where he gives his testimony and he said he wasn't around for um, for some of the trips. That was his own personal thing. That's really not my perception. It is true. He was self-employed. He would say to me, you know, when I don't work, I don't get paid. Okay. <clears throat> he wasn't really comfortable traveling. We would do three-day weekend things. And, you know, from Kokomo, that's New York or Las Vegas or Chicago. Um, <laughs> There were, there were times in the summer where if I didn't go, if I waited for him, I wouldn't go. 
Yeah. His blessing. Right, we gone. <laughs> you know, we're hitting, so, we're hitting the road. Yes, we took, although our lake cottage, he spent a lot of time there weekends with the kids. You know, this was his personal perception that he had spent time with them. That is not my perception. And here's the thing, too. I mean, within a marriage, you know, you might hear something, oh, I would never let my husband do that, or I would never. We we were married for 40 years. There were, it worked well for us. Yeah. It worked well for us. And frankly, um, he wanted me to be independent. He wanted me not to be saying, oh, what can I do here? And so, yes, I'd occasionally go to the movies by myself. I wanted to see the movie and he didn't. Um, he would go off on a trip with a couple friends on a motorcycle. We didn't have to do everything together. Yeah, and yeah. and it, I was okay with that. So mm -hmm. I know I've listened to him say that. And I guess probably staring down the tunnel, knowing that the tunnel is coming to an end, yeah. Paul probably could muster regrets. Mm -hmm. But I was a very happily married lady to this very wonderful man. And I... I think that's the first vote. Okay. I yeah. it wasn't my perception. I know yeah. I've, I've listened to him and I've heard him say that. And I'm I'm sorry he regretted it. He had lots of time with our children when they were adults. And here's another thing. Mm -hmm. Some men aren't good with little children. <laughs> I don't care what the videos show you. Some men are not good with little children. <laughs> Some men are not good with different. And the fact that you're your they're yours. Um does it, you know, you, you have a two and a half year old who's all sticky and icky and some people don't like that. And I don't, I don't think you need to force that on people. So I don't know. I, yeah. No, I can, I can, I can definitely imagine. I, that was his, that was one yeah. of his regrets, yeah. but it wasn't something that it I wasn't was. wasn't something that came between the family no. and took away from the family at all. Yeah, but, that, no. but, it make, but it makes sense how he could feel that way. Like you said, when you know, you get that diagnosis, you know, your time is, you don't know how much time you got left. And you're just thinking about those times when, you know, you, you thought maybe was going to go and didn't go and shouldn't feel like you should. Have. So it's understandable. This is probably rather mundane. We ate dinner together as a family. Mm -hmm. Most nights mm -hmm. we went to church together as a family. Most Sundays we we went out to the reservoir and and played on the beach and rode but we, we did things together but they were more local and you could appreciate kokomo it would be limited mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah, so no i appreciate I'm that if yeah, he yeah. regretted that uh it wasn't my perception yeah yeah i never no, felt I neglected i don't think yeah. they felt neglected yeah no that, that's good to hear that's great to hear um I think it's more so just for you to share your perspective on, you know, cause I'm sure there are people in those situations that really didn't spend time, you know, and whether it's a husband or a wife and then they get us in a situation where they look back and, you know, they, they really weren't there, you know? So that's good to hear that, you know, that was kind of just his, his perspective and it wasn't something that came between the family. Um, he also uh, talked about the differences between friends and acquaintances. So upon that situation, I know you guys did the journaling to keep your friends involved and updated. 
But um, how was that, you know, just dealing with people um, through that experience, whether it was early on or just progressing through the- This is a really good question you're asking. Mike, for all sorts of complicated reasons, how he was raised and all, he wasn't really good at friendships with men or women. He would have told you his three best friends were three men he never saw. I didn't point that out to him, but they didn't live anywhere close. And this is back in the day when you didn't social media all the time, he would say his three best friends were these people. And I think, well, you never see those three people. Now he had lots of colleagues, but I'll tell you what, when he got sick and the men from our church, they loved on him. They one he looked up from his hospital bed and there are these 10 men who have driven down to Indianapolis just to be with him. And he was, this is sad, he was shocked. He didn't know people did that. But he became a person who did that. So that four and a half years, he opened he, he up grew. And, and people found out what a fun, good guy he was. Um they were able, he, he kind of, he had always kind of kept people like this mm -hmm. and he let him in and I got to watch. It, it was good. It yeah, was good. Yeah, yeah, it was great. It's kind of probably like you got to see a, a whole other side of your husband that you hadn't experienced. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, Want to pivot to finish the conversation. Um, Obviously, such a pivot is such a basketball term. I love that. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, so obviously, being in Kokomo all the years, yeah. uh, being in Kokomo all the years that you were and your husband, you know, being involved in the community. Um, I just want to know, like, what was some of your um, involvement in the community outside of just your both of your careers? Um, uh, yeah, just maybe share on that a little bit, and then I'll get into kind of how we we work together a little bit. Sure. Well. Like I say, Sunday church, we were involved with our church. Mm -hmm. And involved with your church involves a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, both Mike and I, when my children were small, Brandon, like in the 80s and the 90s, mm -hmm. I was very much them, my work and them. Mm -hmm. But as they got older, not only did I do some writing on my own, and I wrote for the Tribune, and I published for the Tribune, uh, I taught at Ivy Tech where I learned, I met a whole lot of new people. Um, and then in 2003, where were you in 2003? 2003, I was eighth grade going into, into freshman year, transitioning from Northwestern into Copenhagen. Okay, okay. I ran for mayor. Really? <laughs> I did. I ran wow, for I did, mayor. I, I did not and know I that. Was, I was one of five people I had done nothing in politics ever. I had a student teacher, so I had a little extra time to go to government meetings. And I went, wow, I didn't know this was going on. This is a whole different world here, you know? And got real, real smart about sewers and got real smart about unions and uh, had all, and I actually, I, I wasn't, I really, I, I sat across the table from Mike and I said, this is crazy, but I think God wants me to run for mayor. And he just looked at me. I said, well, mayor, what's his name's not running? I look at the five people that are running 
they don't have any more qualifications than me. And he said, well, if God says you should run, you should run. So I ran for mayor. And, you know, I did the, I, I, I came in third of five, which was pretty good. And frankly, I don't know what I would have done if I'd won. That would have been a whole career change. But I did get like a whole new education on government. And then after the, after the uh, election, uh, the mayor asked me to serve on the planning commission. And so I actually had a position like two times a month we would meet and go over planning and so forth. So it gave me a whole new perspective on things. Yeah. Um, that's kind of it for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, work and children took up most of my time in the 80s and the 90s. Mm -hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I did not know that you ran for mayor, so that, that was a, I did. a new fun I fact. Yeah, that's, I, I'm going to have to maybe pick your brain some more one day on that one. Um, so as, as you know, um, I've been pretty involved in Kokomo uh, throughout my basketball playing career. Um, haven't been able to spend a lot of time back in Kokomo, but when I have came back in the summer, um, it's really, Kokomo's been really my number one priority, you know, and I've been, although I haven't, haven't spent a lot of time there in the last 11, 12 years, mentally and emotionally, I've been completely invested into there is what I've come to find out. Um, so, you know, just being an athlete, um, having my own resources, being able to be resourceful with others, um, you know, I, I took it on myself, you know, to play another role, you know, to come back and yes. try to show and, and just uh, really just bring people together as much as I can. That's what kind of what it comes down to. Uh, provide kids some opportunities to uh, better themselves, uh, provide some entertainment, um, and just give people like, you know, who businesses the, the chance to support us, you know, support different efforts. Um, you know, so we'd, like, we'd like to think that role models can go beyond race, and I know I can speak to you about this, a successful Black man, I mean, you followed your dreams, you're smart, you love people, you know, you are an amazing role model to kids in Pocomo. I mean, to, probably everywhere, but I know you've done your, it was Gus Macker, wasn't it? I don't, you did um, that some was, kind of. Gus okay. Macker was, Gus Macker was the, one of the last events that we, that I, that I had, that I planned. I think those are great. I think, you know, and you being there and you bringing that to Kokomo. Yeah, Kokomo has a real drawing power. Uh, I, I've never really understood it, but it draws people back home. It really does. Yeah. So um, not to go too in depth, you know, but um, through all that work and all those efforts and, you know, everything that I've, you know, uh, had visions of doing and have done, um, there has been another side of it that I really haven't shared, you know, at all. Um, and it's, I would say it would be like a tougher side, you know, of understanding, you know, what you're dealing with from a society standpoint, uh, from, you know, dealing with different business owners and, you know, just people who have different agendas, you know. So uh, what would be, and you know, per, you know firsthand, you know, so um, I would want to know what would be your thoughts and what would be your encouragement to someone like me who has experienced the, the negative parts of, of community efforts and politics and all that, you know, because 
you know, it could, it, at one point it was discouraging until I got through and really understood what I was involved with. So what would be your thoughts on that, you know? You, you know what, you know what, I, something that I've never gotten a handle on, but basketball specifically in our town rubs some people like, well, you got advanced and my kid didn't. And I used to hear parents, you know, some kid would be on the bench and their kid would, and then I, the whole, the whole fan base made me very uncomfortable. And my son, six foot four, chosen as one of the 10 that Basil wanted to bring along. And the end of his sophomore year, he looked at me and he said, mom, I hate it. To the depths of his soul, I hate it, I wanna quit. Well, his dad got cut and he couldn't believe anybody would cut, I mean, you know, there's a, I'll be honest with you, when I contributed to one of your things, which I was glad to do it, I'm glad to do it again. I like what you do. Really, really real quick, like you were, like the first three or four years of me operating and doing stuff in Kokomo, all the efforts, everything was funded by myself, you know? So you were, you were the first person that made a donation towards our efforts. So thank you for that. But I had somebody, and I'm not going to tell you who, who somehow found out I had contributed and mm -hmm. said, you shouldn't be contributing to that. Mm -hmm. And I just went, well, that's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an ego thing. And it mm -hmm. wasn't somebody in politics. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm guessing you, you can't not work through say the city hall or Carver Center or some other group that brings children together like the YMCA. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really know. I don't really know. I'm sorry, I don't have a good answer for you on that. But anytime you extend yourself, like funding something, there will be naysayers who go, well, who do you think you are? Okay? Mm -hmm. And I'm out of it. So I don't care if I do something. I I know what I know who I am, and I don't care. Same, same. Yeah, yeah, but it's an uphill battle because you know you've done what every little eighth grader wants to do. You not mm -hmm. only played varsity, you went off to college and played college basketball, and then you played professional ball. Mm -hmm. And we have a couple other kids. Like, uh, who's the kid with the smile? He's he's he goes by initials, D B B D. Oh, DJ. Ah, who wanted me to call him that, and I kept saying, "I really, you know, it has a smile." DJ Valentine. Yes, yeah. and he has gone on to do things like that. Well, it's a sliver of kids that are going to pay for, play for the NBA. Sliver, mm -hmm. and you guys have gone and done your dream, plus. I don't know, there's probably more glory if you play in the United States, but frankly, what you've been doing sounds pretty exciting to me, being all over. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I love that you want to do things for the kids in our town. Need it, need it. Yeah, I appreciate it, I appreciate it. Uh, so we'll wrap it up with that. Thank you, thank you very much for, for taking the so time. Where, where do I find your podcast? So I can send you the platform that I uploaded to, and then right. you, can either, you can either listen on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. 
Okay. And I also upload them to YouTube, so I can send you the link to the to the full interview on YouTube That's as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, one thing I really miss is having a whole classroom full of kids to help me with my technology. Uh -huh. so I usually have to try to figure it out myself, and I'm pretty slow. So yeah. look what we got. We got this though. This is great. Yeah. yeah, we did. We did. Got that first one out of the way. <laughs> this is great, Brandon. Yeah, it's so good to see you. You too. You too. Thank you very much. I'll, uh, I'll send you those links and I'll through the week, I'll probably post like three or four videos, just short clips. Yeah. Okay. I'll send them to you. Thank you very much. One of my babies. I love you. All right. Love you too. Okay. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.